Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles. Would you open them to Romans chapter 12? If this is your first Sunday here, welcome. Uh, we are in the middle of looking at the seven primary spiritual gifts in the book of Romans chapter 12, which we're in a verse-by-verse study in the book of Acts. And we've paused in Acts chapter 6 for this time of equipping because we want to be equipped to step into people's lives so that we might be the church. It's not an option. It's not an option whether you're like, well, maybe I want to be the church. I kind of, no, you are the church so that it's God's will for you to be the church in a culture that desperately needs the church. So important that you grasp that. And when you do, when you grasp the significance of the purpose for your life, it just opens up all these vistas of joy and happiness and usefulness. And one of the ways we learn how to be used by God is learning the spiritual gifts. There's seven primary spiritual gifts mentioned in Romans 12, and we are coming today to the fourth gift, the gift of exhortation. Now, when Paul was writing to the church in, in Ephesus, to the Ephesians, he mentions to them in, action, in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're saved by grace and grace alone, and that we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. There's a Greek word for that. It's the Greek word poema. And it's where we get our English word poem. And it opens up an understanding of God's work in our lives as he lays out in a very, like, like it's better to think of it like a very creative handiwork of God that's unique. I mean, anyone that's into poems, you know, some of them can be very interesting. Some can be very hard to understand. Most of them are very beautiful. And as God is working that through our lives, he is, he is still at work. He's not done. Right now, I can say that with absolute authority, God is not done with your life. And you say, well, Ed, how do you know that? Well, I know because you're still alive. You're breathing here right now. And it's too bad that this truth has become kind of bumper sticker theology because when something becomes a bumper sticker, then it gets minimized and People don't pay attention to it anymore. It kind of becomes cliche. But you know, you've probably seen the bumper sticker uh, that goes something along the lines of God is not finished with me yet. Well, that is absolutely true. It's not an excuse for bad driving. It's a truth for you to submit to the Lord. Like he's not finished with you yet. There's still much to be done. There's still much to be removed. There's still much to be added into your lives. And he's not done. You are his workmanship, his poema. He is actively involved in your lives. And the way that you can look for God's activity is in the spiritual gift that you have. Now, everyone has been given at least one of these seven primary spiritual gifts. But many of you operate in much of them. I mean, there could even be the rare person that operates in all seven of them. And that's beautiful and wonderful. I certainly see many of them active in my life over the years, and I'm grateful for that. And so by way of review, as you know your spiritual gift, so far, number one, we have studied the gift of prophecy. So let's just notice real quickly here, Romans chapter 12, pick up in verse six. Let's read them together. It says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. 
If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives in liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy. The first one, prophecy. We learned that that is a verbal gift and we defined it as declaring the truth. Declaring the truth. God has given some men and women in the church the supernatural ability to take his word and cause it to shine. Secondly, we looked at the gift, the nonverbal gift of ministry, or sometimes we refer to that as the gift of service. This gift, we learn, is practicing the truth. And God has given some men and women in the church the supernatural ability to serve and to serve and to serve some more. Thirdly, we studied the verbal gift of teaching. This gift we learned is explaining the truth. So you have declaring, practicing, explaining. God has given some men and women in the church the supernatural ability to teach the Bible in a way that it can be understood in its meaning, but also understood on how it applies to our lives. Which brings us to the fourth gift today, and we're going to follow the same pattern. We're going to define it. We're going to look at it operating in the life of Jesus. We're going to see it operating in the early church, and then we'll look at some hazards. And today I have bonus for you. I have some tips on how to use this gift because it's so important. So number one, what's the definition? The definition, this is a verbal gift, just like teaching. It's a verbal gift, and it can be defined as applying the truth. So the gift of exhortation has an emphasis upon application. Where teaching explains what things mean, the gift of exhortation applies this particular truth. So to exhort is the Greek word parakletos, or different versions of it. It's the same word you recall Jesus used to describe the comforter, the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside and help. The word exhort is, means to strengthen, to encourage, and to comfort. And the idea is to come alongside someone to help them. God has given some men and women in the church the supernatural ability to help people apply the truth of God's word in their everyday living. And so the gift of exhortation is often expressed as, this is what the Bible says, but this is what it looks like active in your life and applied in your life. And how we need more of this gift flowing. How we need it to be practiced in the church today. One of the ways you can look at this gift is in the realm of discipleship. This is a key gift for those that like to emphasize discipleship. Now, a disciple, by definition, is a learner. And so the process of discipleship is to take the Bible and help someone learn what it means to follow Jesus. And so a discipler is someone who teaches you the things about the Lord. And this gift is often active in the realm of discipling and mentoring. You might hear that word mentoring, someone that would give you advice and lead you. Now, let me just pause here for a second and, and, and let you in on insight how I've seen the world kind of creep into the church that we need to be very careful of. And that is this great emphasis on mentors. 
Like, it's almost like you, you hear some people, you got to have a mentor, you got to have a mentor. If you don't have a mentor, there's something wrong with you. Can I just declare to you today, both you in the room, you guys watching downstairs, watching online, listening on the radio, you do not need a mentor. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Here's what you need. You need to read the Bible, pray every day, and obey it. You don't need a mentor. That emphasis on mentoring puts you in a very vulnerable place. It puts you in a vulnerable place because now the mentor takes a place in place of Jesus in your life. Now, it may be subtle. It could be someone that wants to take advantage of you. But this idea of you need a mentor, you need a mentor, you don't need a mentor. Read your Bible every day, pray, obey the Bible, and what you might need is, you may not need a mentor, you may just need a Christian friend. Someone that can just walk alongside of you, because with mentoring is also this whole thing of accountability. It's such a big deal for like the last 10 or 15 years. Got to have accountability partners. Got have people in your life for accountability. You don't need an accountability partner. You need to obey God. That's what you need. And you're like, oh, Ed, I'm not liking the message so far. I don't understand what in the world that has to do with exhorting. Well, as I saw, this was kind of laid on my heart last night for us as a church. So I'm bringing it to you today, but it's not in my notes. It just felt like, I felt like the Lord was wanting us to understand that we are putting people in the place of God where they don't belong. They don't belong. Now, let's just be careful here, lest I be misunderstood or even misquoted. I am not opposed to the idea of someone helping you learn. I'm not opposed to the idea of someone checking in on you and holding you accountable to areas of your life. But what I am opposed of is these positions that have been created that sound like you have to have them or you're not going to be a good Christian. It's not true. Not only that, but having that extra layer, now you kind of blame other people for your own behavior. Well, you know, if I just had an accountability partner, then I wouldn't. That's not true. Like you can have a thousand accountability partners and anybody that's ever held anyone accountable to anything understand this. It is very easy to lie. It's very easy to lie. Call, hey, how you doing, brother? How you doing with that sin? Oh, I'm doing fine. Well, you're, good chance you're lying to me. You know, and then you blow up down, down the road because you didn't even use the tools that were available to you. We do this in a small way already. We do this in a small way. You're having a bad day, had a bad week, but you want to be in church. So you come kind of put on a smile and then out in the foyer you don't even know someone they come to you and they say hey how you doing and what do you say oh I'm fine liar you're not fine but I know what you don't want to deal with it you didn't come to talk to anybody you had a hard week you just want to worship you were hoping nobody would see you and so you're just there there's a lot of reasons for that but it was still a lie and it's very easy to lie I'm not opposed to accountability. I'm not opposed to even the idea of someone teaching and leading you. I'm opposed to having that person in a position that limits you from depending upon the Lord. You have the Spirit of God in you, dwelling in you. You're born again. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As a believer, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You have everything you need in Christ to have a successful, strong relationship with the Lord. I don't want you taken advantage of. I don't want people, because that's what's happening in the last couple years. Like 
the last couple of years have made people wander all over the place and now they're following like just the weirdest teachings coming from the weirdest places because they stumbled on this YouTube video or this thing over here and they don't even know the character or the nature of this person but their weird teachings are now something they're into because they needed somebody like that. You don't. What you need is a good Christian friend. Good fellowship. How did the early church stay accountable? How did they stay so strong? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread. It says later on in chapter 2 that they went from house to house talking. And here's, here's the essence as we get to this. I got a couple more points and I'll explain to you why this came out, I think. In the life of the church, we have all these categories and things that people say we need. And they're all replacing what we really need, and that's love. Love will lead you to call someone and check in on them. Love will have you show up at the door with a meal with a family that's hurting. Love will give you a heart of compassion and care and concern so that you will teach or lead or help or learn. Jesus said that what we need is to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and then we'll love our neighbor. And these layers of the church world and the church business and all that nonsense have taken us away from the simplicity of the gospel. And the simplicity of the gospel is love. And you know what? If you love God, you have no need for accountability because when you love God, you, you hate sin and you stay away from it. And you live an honest, forthright life. The Bible says that we're to walk in the light as he is in the light. And when we do that, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And the reason I believe part of, not only for the instruction purposes, but the reason why I think this came out is because what you just experienced was the gift of exhortation. It was in a very uncomfortable application of the Bible for your life. And even some of you already, I, I know I'm going to get emails, but if you have any complaints about my, if you have anything good to say, my email is ed at edtaylor.org. If you have anything bad to say, it's Ian at calvaryco.church. He loves these kind of emails. I'm sure I'll get emails, but I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. You can express yourself. You can be mad at me. You can be defensive. I just want you right with the Lord. So if you responded to me, if you respond to this exhortation, if it makes you uncomfortable, good. Because God is calling you to a higher level. He wants you to be somebody you're not right now. He is growing you in the potential he has for you. The plans and purposes he has for your life, they're for good and not evil. God wants to give you a future and a hope. And if it takes a little bit of stirring up and making you uncomfortable, good. Respond to it by surrender to the Lord. Respond to it by being a man or a woman of love. And even as you experience the gift, you can see how uncomfortable it can be when you receive an application that's hard. Because there's two complementary parts to this gift. There is the side of exhorter that's a comfort. And who doesn't like comfort? We all, if you're a comforter, come my way. Comfort me, coddle me, take care of me. I love comfort. But the flip side of that coin is when you give a word to help someone, sometimes the help hurts. And so there are always those that will come and lift us up, encouragement, that's important, we need that. Keep doing that if, you, if that's how God has made you, how you exercise the gift of exhortation by being a comforter, we need you. But there are also not just those that lift us up, we also need those that will move us on. We get stagnant, we just don't move. Or we even worse, we regress. 
and the Lord will send somebody. You start going backwards, you start regressing, God will send someone to you. To, sometimes it's gentle nudging, sometimes it's hard, difficult, but nonetheless, it's still from God. So a person with the gift of exhortation loves people. They love being around people. Uh, you could call them a people person. We all know folks like that. They love encouraging. They love one-on-one times. They love to be together with people to, to pour into them. Exhorters are typically people that are available. They seem to always be available. They seem always ready to meet with you. They, they, sometimes they'll even drop the important things that relate to them so that they might meet with you. Exhorters have a God-given ability to see potential in people that others would ordinary, ordinarily overlook. They have a tendency to see what can be in a person's life, overemphasizing uh, instead of emphasizing where a person is in the moment. Exhorters are generally sensitive to other people's feelings and are often very careful and thoughtful in what they say and how they choose to present the truth in a given situation. Exhorters have the ability to look past the outward that might offend others and see problems in people's lives and then have this automatic desire to sacrificially want to help them solve it with the word of God. I see this happen a lot after, even after a service where there'll be folks that come up and we're praying and, and some, some folks will just be so beat up because they had a bad week, had, had, had a bad month. And if I know them, and, and I think of one brother in particular that I've been serving for many years now, I, I, you know, he just have a bad week or even have a bad month and we'll come up and we'll pray. And, and I always need to remind him, and I do, I said, I know it's hard, man, and I know it's difficult, and I know you feel like you should be farther than you are. I know But bro, you got to remember how you walked into this church. You are not the same man. You you are not that person. And so the exhorters have a tendency to go, I know it's bad right now. I get it. But man, look how far you've come. And if God has brought you this far, then don't you think he's going to seal the deal and finish it all the way until the coming of Jesus? And that's a gift of an exhorter. God will impress that upon your life instead of, you know, an exhorter doesn't say, I can't believe you're always a failure. Why are we always praying about this? I can't believe, like that's not exhorting, that's flesh. Stop it, don't do that. Instead, encourage and strengthen. Often this gift, and this is an important distinction, often this gift is confused with the gift of teaching. The gift of exhortation is not the gift of teaching. They can operate together, but they're two very distinct gifts. People with the gift of exhortation may sometimes have a word or have an application for a larger group of people, but it's very uncommon. This is almost always activated and used on a personal, relational, and it's more application. You're not so, you're not so, keen on explaining every little detail, but you are, the person with the gift of exhortation is more how, not the what. The emphasis for exhortation is how. And it's not just how, it's how it is for you individually and personally. How did this gift operate in Jesus? Well, like the gift of teaching, now we're on point number two, like the gift of teaching, this was all throughout the life of Jesus. For example, all of Matthew 23 is the gift of exhortation. Those of you familiar with Matthew 23, remember that it's time Jesus took away to rebuke the religious leaders. So exhortation came forward in the form of rebuke. 
You guys are doing it wrong, but this is how to get it right. You're doing it wrong, but this is how to get it right. He, he does this at the end of the Bible too. Turn over to Revelation with me, would you? Would you? Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter two. In these final words, these post-it notes, if you will, to the churches, the seven churches in Revelation, we see a couple of examples of this. In Revelation chapter two, Jesus is speaking to the church in the city of Ephesus, and he starts in verse two, I know your works, I know your labor, your patience. Verse three, you persevered, labored for my name's sake. And then verse four, nevertheless. So up to verse four, it's more explanation, more encouragement, but now he says, nevertheless, here's the exhortation. He says, I have this against you, you have left your first love. Now, if you were a teacher, that's your gifting, you would then begin to explain how they left their first love. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. This is how you left your first love. This is what it looks like. But he doesn't do that. He gives them the insight of how to get back. Hey, you left your first love, and this is how you apply that. You got to get back. And that's what he says, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or I'll come to you quickly. He's exhorting them, and he's giving them the way back, the application. He does it again in chapter three. Notice with me. This one's heavy. This one's a heavier one. Revelation chapter three, to the church in the city of Sardis. He says in verse one, these things says, he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know your works. And then here's the exhortation. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Now, how would you like to hear that? Well, it'd be very hard to hear, except I think you would want to hear it if you've been living a hypocritical, hypocritical life and you thought it was okay. You would want, I hope you would want somebody to come and say, what you're doing is wrong. It looks like you're alive, but I know, God says, I know that you're dead. And then he gives the way out. He says, remember, therefore, what you received and heard, hold fast, repent. Therefore, if you won't watch, I'll come to you as a thief and you won't know the hour that I come upon you. This is a deep ministry. I would go so far as to say that this is one of the primary reasons, before, besides the sovereignty and the providence of God, this is the, one of the primary relatable reasons of why they killed him. They did not like his exhortations. He was done. They were done with it. They didn't want to hear it anymore. They needed to remove him in order to continue on with their sinful ways. Where did it operate in the early church, thirdly? Well, turn over, would you, to Acts chapter 4. Uh, th there was a brother in the church that he was so filled uh, with this gift that they named him that. Isn't that amazing? Like the, his name became exactly what this gift is. Acts chapter 4, you Bible students already know, we're talking about the man by the name of Barnabas. And he was just such a great encouragement. He was such a parakletos to the early church that it says in verse 36 that Joseph, whose name also was Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. He was such an encouragement and an exhorter that they gave him that name so that everyone can remember. And remember, he was an encourager not just by his words, but also by his actions, because it was, I believe, when he sold his property and such a prominent gift to the early church and such a desire to help, that it inspired Ananias and Sapphira to do the same thing. 
Except, of course, they did it with a way where they lied and tried to pull a fast one on the apostles and on God himself, and it didn't work. But he was an encouragement. And exhortation comes primarily with the mouth, but occasionally with the life. But you know, all the Bible writers had exhortation in their writings. I think, of, I think if there was one guy in the New Testament that was an exhorter, it would have to be Paul the apostle. He was an exhorter. In his letters, most of his letters, I think with the exception of Romans and Hebrews, fit, divide nicely into two sections. The first section usually is very doctrinal, very, very, very informational. This is who God is. This is who God, what he said. This is his character, his nature. Then the second half of the book, very applicational, very exhortive, very in, like here's where, here's, here's God and here's your response to God. This is who he is, and this is what God expects from you. And he was just an exhorter. I think, you know, Hebrews and Galatians are probably the most exhortive books in the whole Bible. I mean, I want you to consider what Paul, just remember what Paul said to the Galatians. Paul asked them, he said, who has bewitched you? Imagine that. Your spiritual leader is writing you a letter and go, what is your problem? What's happened to you? Why are you listening to them? Why are you following them? It's compared to you like being under a spell. What's happened to you? Those are strong words to hear, but listen. You and I need to hear strong words. You won't grow any other way. It's, you, you won't survive on a diet of strong words. I mean, it'll discourage you and beat you up uh, at times, so you don't have a, a constant, continual flow of them. But if your friends don't tell you the truth, if your church doesn't tell you the truth, if your pastor doesn't tell you the truth, then who in the world is going to tell you the truth about your life? Who will you listen to? Who will you receive from? Who will you take somebody that gave you a hard word, and instead of being all defensive about it, you pray and ask God to give you wisdom? You just pray. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. Sometimes people with the gift of exhortation, they deliver it wrong. That's possible. They just deliver it wrong. Certainly that has been something that has been a, a part of my life from the beginning. I, I, I've seen this gift activated in my life from uh, being a new believer. But man, I mean, I made, I made and I make so many mistakes with it. I want to do what's right, but I've got to learn to do what's right. And one of the only ways to learn it is to do it and fail and get back up and do it and fail and get back up so you learn the dependence upon the Lord. Paul was a great great exhorter. I think of James. He was a great exhorter. Remember in his letter? I mean, he had some hard things to say. He says, hey, faith without works is dead. You say you have faith? Well, show me by your works. Well, if you're a guy that's walking around saying, I have faith and have no good works, that would be a hard thing to hear. Say, you show me your works. What do you mean show your works? And I think of the other exhortation that comes to mind in James, where he tells a church, and may the Lord never have to tell us this, but he tells a church don't you show partiality. Straight up. And what was their partiality? They were treating rich people better than poor people. And he goes, don't you do that. I don't even know why you're in that area. You don't tell the poor people to sit on the floor and the rich people get the good chairs. Like you take care of everyone as they are blood bought by Jesus himself. And you don't show partiality. Well, I mean, that would be a hard word to receive, especially if you're prejudiced. Especially if you look down on people. That would be a hard word. Why? Because it's an exhortive word. It's a word to move you on. Move you on. Finally, let's look at some of the hazards 
some of the hazards, some of the difficulties, in no particular order. We've looked at the definition. We've seen it in the life of Jesus, seen it in the early church. Here are some things to watch out for. Number one, if you have the gift of exhortation, you may be easily discouraged or often discouraged because those you're trying to help won't listen to you. And so what do you try to do? Help them more. And what do they do? They don't listen to you. And it can hurt. It can be very painful. You're trying to encourage. You're trying to help. You're just doing what you believe God's called you to do. And it can be very discouraging when people don't listen to you. And you're just exercising your spiritual gift. It can be very discouraging when people start to avoid you. And who you thought were friends don't want to be your friends anymore. You go, why? Well, because I don't like what you say. You don't like what I say. What did I say was wrong? Oh, you didn't say anything wrong. I just don't like it. And it can be very discouraging. It can be very discouraging where people start to avoid you now. People can, I mean, pastors in particular, pastors in particular, I've watched over the years uh, serving here, even in California, as I go back, I'm always going back to memories there. And, and I watch people that were walking with the Lord once, and they're not walking with them anymore. Walking with the Lord, now they're off into other stuff, and they're, some are even saying they're atheists. It's just horrible. And, and I remember a time where there was a brother here that got into something, got really mad at me, left, and ended up backsliding. And, just, and I remember it hit me so hard. I was so discouraged. And I'll tell you why. I, I, I was sitting there just thinking about it, and I'm like, God... If this is the result of my 10 years of teaching and discipleship, I mean, everything I poured into this guy, my result is him walking away from you, then I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm doing the wrong, I shouldn't be doing this. Because in my mind, that just shouldn't happen. But it does. And you got to work through the discouragement because in one way, in a big way, we're not responsible for other people's decisions and their rebellion, because it's like, it's like Elijah. Elijah went through the same thing biblically, you know. Elijah has a great victory on Mount Carmel, and if you go to Israel with us, we'll go up to the area. We'll be standing on Mount Carmel, right where the, in the area where the victory took place. And there he is, victory over all the prophets of Baal. And then at the accusation uh, and the threat from Jezebel, he runs away, hides in a cave, and is so discouraged. Woe is me. There's nobody here. I'm the only one. There's nobody there. And what does God do? He comes, he encourages. Encourages Elijah. He goes, look, bro. I don't know if that's how he used what language he used, but he's like, hey, look, bro. Uh, you're not the only one around here. There's thousands of people uh, that I have reserved. You just get up and get back into business. Get back in what I called you to do. And that's what Elijah did. And we're grateful because we learn from that. We know what it's like to be discouraged, and we know like what it's like to get back up. I think of Samuel. He was discouraged as well because you remember that time in Samuel's life. The nation of Israel said, "We do not want you to lead us anymore." Neither, we don't want your kids either. And for good reason, their ki- his kids weren't walking with the Lord. So we don't want you anymore. But that hit Samuel in the heart. And he got all beat up and discouraged. And he's like, man, they're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. And remember God, he hears that. And he says, no, no, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. God says, they're rejecting me. And here you are paying the price and the brunt of it. You can get discouraged. Number two. Someone with the gift of exhortation can easily overextend yourself. This is very similar to the gift of of service, where you can overextend yourself. You need to learn the word no. Let me give it to you in another language. No. I know three languages. Did you know that? No. Here's a fourth language. No. No. 
You need to learn the word no without feeling guilty about it. Because you're always available, because you care for people, because God has used you to help people, you can be overly available and that can lead you to neglect your own home, your own marriage, your own singleness, your own personal walk, and that is not from the Lord. You need to learn to say no at appropriate times. Number three, you can also, in danger of this, with someone with the gift of exhortation can be overwhelmed easily by all of the needs. And one of the reasons is because you see the needs that other people don't see. You just have this spiritual ability to see problems and issues and needs. Not only the present problem, but you know if they don't correct this, it's going to get worse and it just overwhelms you. Some, some of you, you get so overwhelmed by problems that there are times where you don't even watch the news anymore because it really affects you. When you see a story on the homeless, you don't think of it politically. You don't think of it economically. You wonder if they've eaten anything and it overwhelms you. You see the kids on the streets, and you go, how can they live like that? What is going to happen, and how can I help them? And are there seasons in your life where you just can't take it? And so you're like, okay, I can't do everything. We have to remember this. Gift of service, I mean, really, really any of the gifts. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And this gift kind of works with mercy and service. You see them all. As we get to, when we finish all the gifts, you'll see how intertwined so many of them are. But it's easy to get overwhelmed with all the needs. And you just got to learn to trust in the Lord and do what you can. Number four, another big danger of this is that in your exhortation, in your ministry to others, that you lack confidentiality. We've been doing a lot of interviews here lately as, as teams changing and lots of people are joining our team now. And I talk about this as the final interview. We have a long conversation about a lot of different topics, but one very important topic is confidentiality. Confidentiality is absolutely necessary in every, trust is the foundation of every relationship, especially in the church. And so confidentiality is very important. It's important to keep things in confidence that need to be kept in confidence. And why is this important with the gift of exhortation? I'll tell you why. When you're ministering to someone in a crisis, you may get something in a moment that they've never told anyone else their whole lives, and they're trusting you with it. And they're trusting with you with the expectation that you will not tell anyone else. You will not tell any, you will not break their trust. They gave you that information so you could help them, not so you could hurt them. And it's very easy that you start talking about it, you start giving, and you break confidentiality. And it's just a very, um, very difficult thing. You, once you lose someone's trust, it's very hard to get it back. Not impossible, just very hard. Now, of course, you keep things in confidence that can be kept in confidence. Like, for example, if, if somebody confesses something that's illegal, you don't keep that. Like, if you come and go, well, Ed, I just want to let you know I've had a hard week. Well, what happened? Well, you know, I robbed a bank last week. Ah, oh, did you tithe? No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. I went, that's not my first question. That's not my first question. Not at all. But if you confess that you robbed a bank, we're going to call the cops. We're going to do it gently. We're going to let you know, hey, I can't. I'm not going to keep that in confidence. We need to, we, we, we need to you're, you're confessing this. We, anything that relates to a child, any kind of accusation of abuse, molestation, oh, we, don't keep, we don't have this false vow of confidentiality where we keep that. We will do what's best and honorable and right before the Lord for sure. But most things, confidential. Trust is the foundation of every relationship, even more so in the church. And so sometimes in this gift of exhortation, there's just this insight God gives you on someone's life, but it's not to be broadcast. 
It's for the sake of serving. Let me give you another danger, number five, and this is a big one. Uh, the gift of exhortation, you have to be very careful that you don't give your opinions instead of the Word of God. Your opinions, because God uses you and you've seen God use you, you may begin to think that you're the one that matters. And it's your opinions and your, and this is another way that the, the world has snuck into the church where now we all talk about, well, you know, I'm an expert in that. And, and you're just like, yeah, you know, you're expert. I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm the only one that's ever going to tell you this, but let me tell you, you are not the expert in anything. God has all knowledge. He's the expert. And so we need to go to him for fresh wisdom and insight. This is especially important within the church because as you're ministering to people, let's just say you say you, you would come to me and say, but Ed, I'm the expert in marriage counseling. I'm an expert. I've been trained in it. I got my PhD in it, and I've done it in the church for all these years. I'm the expert. You're not the expert. You don't know everything there is to know about marriage problems. You don't. Neither do I. I have no idea. If you came to me right now and said, Ed, my marriage is a mess, I have no idea how to help you. That's not to say that God might not reveal some things to share with you as we talk, but I have no idea. I'm not the expert. And even if you go, well, Ed, this is the situation, me and my wife, X, Y, Z. I'm like, oh, oh, I've dealt with this a hundred times. I know, I have no idea. I need you to talk to me. I need to listen to you. I need to ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. And this happens a lot in the church where people go around like they're experts and they're not experts. That's a whole mentoring thing and I'm the expert, I'm the only one. No, we don't lean on our own understanding, church. And here's the big revelation. I think the biggest thing that God really needs, that, like we really need to hear today, he needs to tell us is nobody cares about your opinion. And we actually live in a culture right now that not many people care about the Bible either. But I'm telling you, if you have a choice of sharing your opinion and the word of God, only the word of God will change a life, not your opinion. And haven't you noticed over the years that your opinion has changed? A lot. You may have thought one thing 10 years ago, but with changes and technology, you changed your opinion. Truth never changes. Truth never changes, but opinions, they change all the time. So when you're exhorting, don't give your opinion. Give the word of God. That's the gift. You don't exercise your gift when you're giving opinions. You exercise that gift when you're giving the word of God. So before we go, let me give you five guidelines now how to use this gift. Five things. We'll go through them very quickly, but they're very important. Number one, when you're using this gift in another person's life, number one, don't make decisions for them. Don't make their decisions for them. Again, that has an, in the realm of opinions too. Like don't, it's not your life. Instead, give them God's word and tell them what God's word tells them to do. The authority is in God's word. And so if there is something to be said, like in a marriage thing, there, there, there are always going to be these things that come up in marriage. And, and so a husband, I'm going to remind them, the Bible says for you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So it would be good for you to learn how Christ loved the church because I will help you be a better husband. Same with the wife. The Bible says, wives, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. So before we ever get to your husband, how is your submission to the Lord? What does that look like? Do a study in the Bible of what submission looks like and let God do, like don't make decisions for them, but rather give them God's word and let him help them make decisions. Number two, and we mentioned this already, but learn to listen. Be a good listener. Such a great tool. One of the best ways for this gift to be used 
It's through a person that listens and listens carefully. Not only that, but when you're asking questions, ask clarifying questions. You can ask one of the powerful questions when you're ministering to someone is, let me just tell you what I heard. And then repeat to them what you heard and let them clarify that you heard it correctly. Because if you heard something different or you interpreted it differently, then you're going to give the wrong kind of biblical counsel because you didn't hear them properly. And it's just a simple seconds. It takes seconds. Another thing when questions and listening is be careful not to ask close-ended questions, like yes or no questions. Like, because when you do that, are you angry right now? No. And that's it. What else are you going to say? It's like, bro, you kind of look angry. Your face looks angry. You got a fist clenched. Your teeth are all like, you're not angry? No. And you're just making them more angry. Instead, ask a question like this. It really looks like you're uncomfortable right now. Tell me about how you're feeling. And you know, you may open a door and somebody will say, you know what, I'm just really frustrated right now. Yeah, I, I can see the frustration. And then you get them talking, they go, because I've always been treated like this my whole life. Well, God just gave you an insight. Don't treat them like that. Respect them, love them, care for them. And it opens up a channel for the word of God. It's much better than going, you know what, you look angry and you stop being angry. And well, you know what? They're going to get more angry. But when you listen, when you watch, when you make eye contact, it's amazing how God will use you. Thirdly, we talked about this as well, but fight the tendency to let people become dependent upon you. Fight the tendency. Because God uses you, there will be that sense where people want to attach themselves to you because you're the tool that God used. Don't allow people to become emotionally attached to you and dependent upon you. Our goal here in this church is to have you emotionally attached and dependent upon the Lord. That's our goal. And we will do what we need to do to keep your eyes on the Lord. You are not the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And we want you dependent upon him. We don't want you leaving drugs to be dependent on a person, leaving out to be dependent on a person, having a very difficult upbringing, dependent on... No, we need to teach you how to be dependent upon the Lord. This is one that gets people upset with me all the time because they, God, God will use me in their lives and it'll be wonderful and great, but then I become the person they think is the only one that can help them. And I'm not the only one that can help you. I'm not. We are surrounded with great godly, I think there's 13 or 14 of us as pastors here. We have a great lay leadership here. There are men and women, there are brothers and sisters, like will probably help you even better than I can help you. But it's not me. I have to make sure that I do what God's called me to do. Otherwise, I'll be taken away from prayer and the study of God's word. And I'll find myself in a place where I'll never be a help to you. And, and it happens even when I'm traveling. Somebody will email me, and if I'm unplugged, I won't get that email for a week. And it's an email, I can't believe it, Ed. It's horrible. I need to talk to you right now. I have to right now. And Julie might call back and say, you know, he's not available, or he might, and I don't get back for it. And finally, I get back to my email after a week, and I, I answer, and I'm, so, I'm sorry I wasn't here. I was traveling. Uh, how can I help you? And the response is, oh, I don't need you anymore. God took care of it. Yes, that's right. And you didn't need me the first time either. God would have taken care of it nonetheless. And it was just another step. It's not that I don't want to serve you. I will. And it's not that I won't pray with you. I will. It's not that I won't talk to you. I'm here after every service. If I don't have an appointment, I will. I'll answer my email uh, to the best of my ability. It's not that. I, it's not that. 
It's, you can't become dependent upon me because I can't be available to you 24-7. Ever. Did you know nobody can be available to you 24-7? Only God is your sufficiency. Let me give you another one. Number four, protect yourself from emotional entanglement. You want to use this gift well? Don't let people become attached to you, but you don't become attached to others. Because, and that's why I think mentoring is so popular today in that topic, is because it feels good to be used by God in someone's life. It feels good. Of course it does. It's like, yes, Lord, this is great. My life has meaning. And I can't believe it. You used me. This is amazing. But then as someone's trying to attach themselves to you, you might want to attach yourself to them because it gives you a quick burst of, oh, yeah, that felt good. Oh, yeah, that felt good. And it becomes a very unhealthy relationship. God did not put you here to attach yourself or to be attached to. God wants you to point people to him. And we take great efforts here. We have some, because of that, we have a few um, guidelines that we follow here. For example, when it comes to counseling, and I don't like counseling so much, I'd rather call it discipleship, but because we all understand that word, when it comes to counseling here in this church, men counsel men, women counsel women. That's the way it is. And it's not going to change. It's not going to change. We're not going to get involved, men with women, women with men. If you're ever back in the offices, you'll see big windows on the door. You'll see accountability that's available so that always somewhere, something, we won't be alone. Why? Because that's the beginning of difficulty. That's not to say that pastors won't pray with you or talk with you. Of course we will. But we will not have that intimate counseling relationship, men with women or women with men. It's men with men women with women. Secondly, we don't encourage or allow in a time of counseling for you to share all of your marital problems and all of the sexual issues in your marriage. We don't want to hear about it. It won't help us do anything for you. So just hold on to it because we don't want anything that would soil the mind, that would enliven sinful things. Like, like that's a different issue God can help solve those issues as you learn to become intimate with one another. And so we won't allow that. We just say stop. We won't allow you to go back, and this is another one, we won't allow you to go back 50 years and tell us all your problems in your marriage for the last 50 years. We won't, well, you know, Pastor Ed, I brought in a notebook and I have exactly 5,732 and a half things my husband has done to me for all these years, or my wife. It doesn't matter which way, it doesn't matter. No, we won't. And you, you might laugh or go, Ed, are you weird? No, I'm not weird. There is an example in my mind of a gal that came in and I sat down with them as a couple and she had a notebook that was this thick. And I didn't know what it was. And as she opened it up, I noticed she was looking at it, telling me he's looking at it. And I said, what is your notebook? And she said, well, it's everything my husband ever did wrong. She didn't say that, but that's basically what it was. Everything my husband ever did wrong. And you know what? If you have a notebook like that, the Bible says love keeps no records of wrongs. And so the way to handle them is right away in the moment. I'm not saying they aren't wrong, and I'm not saying you're not hurt from them. I'm just saying if you hold a book like that, you will never experience intimacy in your marriage. Never. That even if God is ready to work today, the enemy will take you back 30 years to ruin today. That's how he operates. You've got to move forward. So we don't allow that. Another thing here, we, we don't encourage long-term counseling here. We don't like if you go, well, Ed, I need 10 sessions, that's not going to happen here. You're not going to get it. You're going to get time. Pastor's going to invest in your life. But don't think, and even then, don't think you need 10 sessions to change your life. Do you know God can work that fast? 
He can really turn you around fast. And then the next course of your life is not counseling, it's discipleship, where you get involved in community and you read your Bible and pray every day. You'll be amazed what God can do. But we're not going to set up all these different sessions. That's how the world operates. Another thing is we're not going to charge you here. So if you need help, we're not going to charge you. I can't believe like the gift of exhortation, freely we receive, freely we give. So we're not going to charge you. We're going to help you. And we're also going to give you homework. We're going to give you homework. So if you come in on session number one, we're going to tell you, give you maybe a book to read, maybe some scriptures to look up. And then when you call for your next appointment, you can be assured someone's going to ask you, did you do your homework? If the answer is no, we won't meet with you again. I mean, if you won't do your homework, which is look up a couple of scriptures and write a paper, whatever. If you won't do your homework, what makes you think another session's going to help you? And it's just like, God, God's taking us back. And that, you know, this whole study is not only learning about the gift of exhortation, but there were a lot of exhortations in this study. Just feel the room right now. You're like, whoa, whoa, that's heavy. It is. Because God is ready for breakthrough in many of your lives. He's ready to give you the breakthrough. You don't have to keep coming in those doors and leaving these doors and coming in those doors and like, well, I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years and my life hasn't changed. He's ready to change your life. He's ready to stir up your life. And so the fifth thing on using this gift I've already mentioned, but giving homework, giving assignments, pointing people to the word, pointing people to the Lord, so, so important. So God has given some men and women in the church the supernatural ability to help people apply the truth of God's word in their everyday living. And if you have this gift, we appreciate you. We thank you. We may not always be happy with it, but we're always happy with the result. You know that? We're always happy with the end result. It's hard to hear things. It's hard to hear hard things. But when the Spirit of God is working in our lives, I think there's one thing we all share, and that's we want to grow. Yes? You guys want to grow? I want to grow. I don't want to stay stagnant. I want to grow in my life. I want to be a better pastor, better dad. I want to be a better friend, better husband, everything that I, in my life. I want to grow in the things of God until I see him face to face. Okay, so before we leave, how many of you today think you have the gift of exhortation? Okay, keep your hand up. Don't put it down. I exhort you, don't put it down. How many of you think you have the gift of teaching? Put your hand up. Keep them up. How many of you think you have the gift of prophecy? Keep your hand up. Everybody, anybody that has a gift right now that I mentioned should have their hand up. All right, so keep it up. And then how many of you think you have the gift of service? All right, keep them up. Keep them up. Now look around with your hand up. Look around. Just look at all the hands. Just give that a visual. I want you to have a visual. You can put them down now. Thank you. God can work very fast. You may have already know your gift, and it might be affirmation, but four simple 45-minute Bible studies has unveiled all of this so far. God can work fast. He can, and you, you know, you were like, well, I know my gift. I don't know how to use it. That comes with time. That's okay. But look how fast God can work. So if you've got a marital problem, don't you think he can work fast? If you've got a kid problem, don't you think he can work fast? You've got a financial problem, don't you think he can work fast? Like God is on the move in the world today. He is on the move. He is bringing people to himself, convicting of sin. He is drawing people into the family of God until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. God is at work. And it's not for everyone else. He's at work among us. It's not just for them. It's not just for a last minute prayer in a bedside. God is doing a work among us, and I want you to trust Him with your life. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. 
For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.